The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So Ajahn Buddhadasa Gaya, our Strong's teacher, number students in this uh, realm uh, benefited from uh, Buddhadasa wishes that um, all beings dance at ease in the breeze with minds left silent by laying to rest all things. Mm, Dukkha uh, has displaced Dukkha, which has displaced other Dukkha. And it's hard to keep track of all the things we might worry about. There's so much to to care about, so much to love. And sometimes it feels like our our nervous system wasn't really designed to care all the time. Sort of wish it were, but it doesn't feel that it is. And of course, how much rest we need, how much the heart needs to rest, what constitutes rest that changes over the course of a practice. But um, a flower isn't meant to be in bloom all the time. Right. Uh, sometimes, I guess confession time. I really want to. There are no closed buds, but um, I really want to pry open the the kind of petals that are closed. I guess more accurate confession is not that I really want to, it's that I do sometimes. I know that's bad. It's bad, but it's like, uh, I have issues, whatever, you know, this is my impulse, but a flower is not meant to be in bloom all the time. You know, heart opens and closes and I was considering the analogy with, with sleep, sleep, you know, sleep, this like pervasive disconnection from our environment. We have our dreams, but from what's around us, pervasively disconnected. And that comes as a serious opportunity cost to just disconnect for five or eight or 10 hours. Um, but that disconnection actually is necessary for our functioning, for our learning, for our growth. And um, our heart needs rest too. And maybe, maybe equanimity is the kind of deepest form of rest for our heart, our own heart's way of, of sleeping. Our heart, in other words, needs um, 
these moments of being unstimulated. Uh, we usually try to to rest through more stimulation, you know. It's like we're overstimulated by life, by the human condition, by our responsibilities. And then to soothe that stimulation, we kind of pile on more stimulation and build a kind of cocoon of unconsciousness. And... um, We know those moments, right, of kind of like usually usually technologically aided unconsciousness, you know, all the streams of data full. And that's a kind of rest, but our heart is actually highly stimulated. And maybe we say equanimity, this fourth Brahma-Vihara is something like true rest. So uh, T.S. Eliot says, teach us to care and not to care. And um, it sounds harsh. Can't stop caring, right? Teach us not to care. We practice caring and we practice acknowledging that our, um, our wishes do not govern the first noble truth. Do not govern samsara, this realm. And um, the the Buddha did worry about nihilism, worried that the teachings, this path might be construed in such a way it's compatible with nihilism. And... um, wanted to guard against that. And it's, uh, there's some concern, you know, in in emptiness, one one experience is, it's highly interchangeable with others. Really, the raw material of samsara doesn't matter much at all. That's what I was alluding to in the sit, is the, Everything becomes one, one taste. So the the play of change of anicca, and um, sometimes people get the sense from this that nothing means anything, and um, when nothing means anything, love dissolves. Goodness is at risk. But then there's the other side, living with the sense that everything means everything. Every moment has tons riding on it, every decision, each longing, this pain, this hope, this lifetime, this generation. And... um, Everything means everything. And then you kind of can't stop caring or giving or worrying or can't even justify a moment's rest. 
And so we trace out the middle path. The middle path between everything means everything and nothing means anything. We trace out the middle path. And for me, a lot of this is around the relationship, the balance of equanimity and compassion. Equanimity and compassion. And so um, two, two quotes, both about uh, the death of uh, one's father, representing these two sides for me, somehow they capture it beautifully, equanimity and compassion. So the first, first, uh, Carl of Narsgaard. Um, now I saw his lifeless state and that there was no longer any difference between what once had been my father and the table he was lying on or the floor on which the table stood or the wall socket beneath the window or the cable running to the lamp beside him. For humans are merely one form among any which the world produces over and over again not only in everything that lives, but also in everything that does not live, drawn in sand, stone, and water. And death, which I have always regarded as the greatest dimension of life, dark, compelling, was no more than a pipe that springs a leak, a branch that cracks in the wind, a jacket that slips off, a clothes hanger and falls to the floor. And uh, Catherine Schultz from uh, Lost and Found. This is the essential avaricious nature of loss. It encompasses without distinction the trivial and the consequential the abstract and the concrete, the merely misplaced and the permanently gone. We often try to ignore its true scope if we can, but for a while after my father died, I could not stop seeing the world as it really is, marked everywhere by the evidence of past losses and the imminence of future ones. This was not because his death was a tragedy. My father died peacefully at 74, tended through his final weeks by those he loved most. It was because his death was not a tragedy. What shocked me was that something so sad could be the normal, necessary way of things. In its aftermath, each individual life seemed to contain too much heartbreak for its fleeting duration. History, which I had always loved, even in its silences and mysteries, suddenly seemed like little more than a record of loss on an epic scale, especially where it could offer no record at all. The world itself seemed ephemeral. Glaciers and species and ecosystems, the place 
of change as swift as in time lapse, as if those of us alive today had been permitted to see it from the harrowing perspective of eternity. Everything felt fragile. Everything felt vulnerable. The idea of loss pressed in all around me like a hidden order to existence that emerged only in the presence of grief. A hanger, jacket slipping to the floor, or uh, something so sad, the shock of something that's so sad could be the normal, necessary way of things. And so we have equanimity and compassion in relationship, in relationship. Equanimity perhaps um, purifies our compassion. Uh, Our compassion, when purified by equanimity, becomes less compulsive, less codependent, less grandiose, less self-righteous, more patient. And then our compassion is strengthened by equanimity. Actions arising from equanimity are more potent, have greater moral force than those arising from clinging. And so we we zigzag our way through caring and not caring, finding... uh, finding the balance that's right in our heart for our energy, for what we're willing to give right now. And we rest and we serve and we rest and we serve. Offer this for consideration. So, uh, so thank you. Um, yeah. It's been um, good to be with you this uh, this week, and um, yeah, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to. Uh, um, yeah, to to explore these themes together, which feels very much actually in dialogue, even though all we've got is the chat and me talking, but uh feels very much like a, a relationship and aliveness and um, um yeah, so so I will um wish you wish you well, stay stay on the, the chat and um any questions might be able to uh, I've been reading Catherine Schultz often so that's lost and found um, Gil has one more week of retreat um, 
I believe uh, Nikki is here next week, and then uh, Gil will return the following. So, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you all. Yeah, may you, uh, may you be well.